We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. So, we're going to explore a little bit of Al-Fatiha with the point of laying out the foundation uh, for, for further study in any aspect of, of, of Islam. And so, uh, Al-Fatiha, as you know, is usually one of the first things a Muslim memorizes. And, and a way to think about this is... <coughs> The entirety of the Islamic tradition traces itself back to uh, the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him. And the entirety of the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him, trace themselves back to Al-Fatiha. Okay. And what that means is that if you understand, if you really want to understand the essence of the tradition, get to know the Prophet, peace be upon him, get to know the Quran. Okay. And if you really want to understand the essence of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and the Qur'an, uh, then get to know Surah Al-Fatiha. Okay? And if you really want to get to know the essence of Al-Fatiha, then uh, get to know Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, which we'll explore today. And if you really want to get to know the essence of Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, uh, then, get to know the, uh, then get to know the B at the beginning of Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Now, what I'm saying sounds really cool, but it's actually profoundly important and a profound blessing uh, in terms of our tradition because uh, when you look across all the other traditions, you do not, and this is not so much a criticism of them as much as it's uh, an appreciation of ours, that you don't find them having this whole organization uh, built in where you have this central point from which everything begins. Okay? Meaning, if you remove Al-Fatiha, you, you fundamentally change Islam. Obviously, if you remove the Prophet, peace be upon him, the Quran, you fundamentally change Islam. Uh, if you look across other traditions, um, meaning in some ways, Jude, uh, Christianity comes a little bit close because Jesus is at the center. Uh, but uh, the role of the Gospels, the role of the Acts of the Apostles, the role of Paul's letters... Uh, actually uh, compete with the person of Jesus, meaning uh, much of how we see Christianity comes from Paul's letters in contrast to Jesus's teachings in, in, uh, in the Gospels, right? And that's something we can talk about later on. And a lot of people won't really understand it from within the Christian lens uh, except to see how thoroughly the Islamic tradition traces itself back to these central points, okay? Uh, and so it also fits then that the name Al-Fatiha uh, translates as the opener. Okay, so we usually translate it as the opening, right? But when you, trans- when you call it the opener, uh, what's the difference between the two? Opening and opener. How would you answer that question? Active. Yeah, exactly. So opener is active. The Arabic form would be the active participle. And so opening would be a window. Opener would be like a key. Okay. And so the point being... For me to understand the Qur'an, Al-Fatiha is my key to, to understand it. Which then means, for me to understand the Prophet, peace be upon him, Al-Fatiha is my key. For me to understand the whole Islamic tradition, Al-Fatiha is my key. Okay. And, and this will make more sense as we go through it, but one of the, the recurring themes in Al-Fatiha is the mercy of God. Okay. And this becomes very, very important to understand that this is the whole, one of the whole foundations of our entire religious tradition and practice. Meaning, 
even those aspects of Islam that seem to be difficult, let's say passages on fighting, you have to look at them through the lens of God's mercy. Even passages that we look at uh, related to God, um, uh, law or crime and punishment, uh, um, you have to look at them through the lens of God's mercy. Okay. So keep that in mind. And now another way to think about this is when you think of Allah, uh, and you don't have to answer this for us, but answer this for yourself, think about what you honestly think of when you think of Allah. Okay. Like we'd all say, yeah, God is merciful and God loves us and all that. God is creator of all. But think of what you really think of when you think of Allah. Like, for example, when you think of Allah, do you think of Allah as always taking care of you? Or when you think of Allah, do you think of Allah as absent? Okay. Or when you think of Allah, do you think of Allah as punishing you? Okay. Uh, deep down inside, if you evaluate yourself, you'll figure out what are the core attributes you actually think of when you think of Allah. And in some cases, they might not even be attributes of Allah. So, you know, when you grow up in, in Desi tradition or Desi households, you often are spoken of, you often speak of Allah as, as wrathful and all that, probably more so in my generation than your generation. Um, but that's not one of his attributes. Right? And very rarely do you hear even any sort of mention of the wrath of Allah in the Quran itself. You know, I often give the example of, uh, of this uh, student of mine. He was my age, but he was a student who he grew up uh, in a very observant Jewish household. They focused on Jewish education. And, uh, and he was taking a class on Islam with me. In fact, I think it was a class on the biography of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And he, uh, uh, when he started reading through the Quran, he started crying because he had been taught uh, that God is wrath. And the Quran is mercy, 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 mercy. Right? And, you know, mashallah, he eventually became Muslim. And, and the point to think about is whatever it is that I truly think of when I think of Allah will then inform how I look at the world around me. So if I think of Allah as punisher, which a lot of young people and old people actually do, whether or not they admit it to themselves, um, when you're hit with struggle, you're going to see it as a punishment from God. Right? You know, I had a student who visited me literally just a couple of days ago. And I'm trying to remember the exact, exact scenario. Oh, yeah, he was asking me, like, he just, one after another, he kept going through all kinds of really intense struggles in his life over the past couple of years, right? And, and he asked me, like, are these punishments? And I said, no. I mean, you, you don't, I mean, there's higher levels of spirituality that address this in different ways. But in the general sense, uh, no, you don't get punished in this world, right? You get punished on the other side. Uh, uh, and what that means is not that, all right, if you stand in front of a truck, that you're not going to get hit, a moving truck, right? No, that's a consequence. But suppose, you know, I, th I don't know why I'm thinking of this example. Suppose you throw a baseball at somebody. Okay, you hit them in the head, okay, and you have no remorse or anything. It doesn't mean then, that then you're going to get hit by a car, um, you know, as a punishment for hitting that person, right? One is not related to the other, unless you threw a baseball at someone's head and you happen to be gloating while you walk into the street and then the car hits you, right? Then, then they're related. But the point is that uh, punishment is on the other side. What happens to you in this world is, is uh, every single thing is a test. You know? And that's an important point to think about. 
Because if you get into a car accident yourself and you think of God as punisher, you're going to think that God is punishing you for something. Either because you just decided you're a horribly bad person or you did some other things and therefore God is punishing you. No, that's not how it works. That's not how the system works. Likewise, um, if you tell yourself... Likewise, if you tell yourself that you think of, of, of God as merciful, but deep down in your heart you think you truly actually think of God as absent, if you get into that car accident, then either you're going to wonder why didn't God help you, or you're going to wonder, or you're just not going to think too much about God, you're going to, try, you're going to just try to figure out how to, how to fix whatever it is you need to fix. See what I'm saying? That in your core, whatever it is you truly think of Allah will inform how you look at what happens in your life. Okay. To make that point a step further, what you truly think of Islam will then inform how you find yourself motivated or unmotivated to practice Islam. And often we are conditioned to see Islam as a burden. And a way to frame this is, if, you were, if you're inside Islam, as all of you are right now, and suppose you stepped out of Islam and gave it up, and now you're living outside of Islam, would you see your life as being easier or more difficult? I think most of us are conditioned to see that life as easier. That, okay, if I'm outside of Islam, if not, I'm not Muslim anymore, then I don't have to pray, and I don't have to do this, I don't have to do that, I can live whatever way I want. What do you guys think? Uh, 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 does life inside Islam seem easier, or does life outside Islam seem easier? What do you think? Probably outside. I mean, that's, how, that's, that's the point I'm making, that a lot of times that's what we think, right? Um, and in the short term, yeah, it is probably true, right? Uh, but part of the philosophy here is that in the long term, uh, outside Islam will be uh, more difficult. And the way to think about this is that a lot of our Islamic practices, look at them as the way you would look at exercise, right? Exercise, eating right. You're taking a short term, uh, in the short term, you're imposing some discipline upon yourself, um, that may even exhaust you with the theory that in the long term it's going to make you, it's going to keep you in better shape okay. so in the short term if I just gave up all exercise all fitness all nutrition okay life is going to be easier I, I can just eat whatever I want um, but then each of you will see as you get closer and closer to my age you pay for it much more quickly right you know when you're in your in your late teens or early 20s you can just eat whatever you want do whatever you want and you still doesn't affect you when you're in your 30s you know, by the end of the week, whatever you, whatever, you know, bad nonsense you ate or did uh, will catch up to you when you're in your 40s, you know, mashallah, like one of us in this room is, then uh, it, you pay for it pretty much the same day. You might even pay for it before you eat the stuff, right? And so the point is that uh, in the long term, life outside Islam will actually be more difficult than... Uh, uh, than inside Islam. In the short term, yeah, all right, so I don't have to go to Jummah today, I don't have to pray out, all that stuff. Okay. But the point I'm making is how you truly picture Islam will, will then inform how you see practice of Islam. And, and like I mentioned, that we are conditioned in our community these days to see the practice of Islam as a burden. We have a lot of slogans that, you know, if you do this and that, life will be great. But they tend to amount to nothing more than slogans that even the people who preach them uh, probably don't even believe. Like, if you make all your prayers, life will be great and, and such. I don't even know how many people actually say that, actually truly believe it. So, so I'm bringing this back to the point of Al-Fatiha. A lesson to take from the simple fact that Al-Fatiha is the whole foundation is also 
saying to us that one of the most important aspects in your development of Islam is to establish your fundamentals within yourself, okay? your Islamic fundamentals. And, and so then how does most of the Quran actually work? Um, this is a question I've probably asked you before in different contexts. Um, there are 6,000 some, some ayahs in the Quran, 6,000 some verses. How many of those are instructions that say do this or don't do this? Give me a number. Or a percentage. And guess, I mean, one percent. Okay, a little bit higher. Yeah, it's about five percent, right? Maybe ten percent if we really, if we really massage interpretation. So let's even go with a higher number. Let's say ten percent. So we're saying out of six thousand some ayahs, six hundred are saying do this, don't do this, pray, you know, don't kill, uh, give charity, all those things. Okay, which means ninety percent uh, is not instructions. And, and try to imagine that in terms of how you might actually think of, of, of the Qur'an, that we are often conditioned in our community to think of the Qur'an as just non-stop instructions on how do you live your life. Almost none of it is that. Very, very little of the Qur'an is actually instructions. Most of it is focused on your thinking. And a way to think about this is that you have the intellect of your mind, you have the intellect of your heart, the intellect of your heart is your real you. That's the you, that's the consciousness you have. In, you can say, at least in a metaphorical or a spiritual sense, all this might physically be located in your brain or may not even be located in your physical being. That, you know, Allah knows best. But the point being that, um, so what the Quran is addressing primarily is your thinking. Get your thinking straight. Okay. And within that, get, so to speak, the thinking of your heart straight. Okay. That's what the Quran is really, really addressing, more than everything else. And then the actions that the Quran is prescribing is to then reinforce and keep your thinking also straight. Okay. And so even one of the core principles of Islamic law, the Sharia, is that you know, when something is prescribed for us to do, it is actually healthy for us to do in a worldly sense. If something is prescribed for us to stay away from, it's healthy for us to stay away from it in a worldly sense. At the core of the Quran, meaning the vast majority of it, is really, really focused on how you think about things. Okay. So then we said, all right, the whole tradition goes back to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and the Quran. And then the whole of the Prophet and the Quran, peace be upon him, go back to Al-Fatiha. And the whole of Al-Fatiha go back to Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, which then go back to the B. So now let's actually talk about the B of Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So this is, a, this is a preposition. And what does B actually mean? Essentially, it means with or in. Okay. And so with that, we have another of the core principles of, of Islam. Uh, when we speak of with or in, we're speaking of connection. That one of the whole essences of your Islamic thought and practice is focused on connection. Okay. Connection with whom? This really plays out in your prayers. Who are you trying to connect with when you're praying, when you're praying your namaz, your salah? So list it out. Anything comes to mind. Who or what are you trying to connect with? So the easiest one, Allah. Right? You're trying to connect with Allah. Even the word salah means connection. Okay, okay that was the easy part. Okay, now what's the rest? Who else? Uh, you were trying to connect to about four other things or beings in, when we pray. Yeah. Sorry? So, so where do we get the form of the prayer? We get it from the Prophet, peace be upon him. Right? The Prophet, peace be upon him, says, uh, pray as you see me pray. And so think about this in terms of how you learn how to pray. Who taught you how to pray? Or how'd you learn? 
Yeah. And so, so every Muslim you meet who knows how to pray learned from someone else. Okay. And, and now think about this. Like we, we're familiar with you know, the idea of people memorizing the whole Quran because um, there you have an actual book to memorize. We don't have a central book in how to, how to pray. We have a whole bunch of book that, books that people have written. Here is the Prophet's prayer, peace be upon him. We have a whole bunch of hadith narrations, not one big hadith narration that says how he prays. We have a whole bunch of individual ones that you can put together to see how he prays, but that's not how people learn how to pray. You learn how to pray because you learn from someone who learned from someone who learned from someone who learned from someone going all the way back to the Prophet, peace be upon him. That's how you learned how to pray. You might have in some point of your learning a video um, do you guys still watch, uh, like, Adam's World videos? Did you watch that when you were growing up? Okay, I don't know if the, the, the younger people still watch Adam's World. Um, you might have today something on the Internet. You might have uh, today something, um, uh, uh, um, like, in terms of just some other type of, of, of show or lecture. But when you learn how to pray, you learn from other people. Okay. Now, really, really try to conceive of that. That <clears throat> when you are learning something from someone else who's learning from someone else who's learning from someone else, then you have the whole issue of the telephone game, right? That in theory, over the course of 100 years, what that person taught in 1916 and what you're practicing in, two, or 1917, what you're practicing in 2017, they should be different because of the telephone game. Okay. But then what do you see? Everybody in the world prays almost exactly the same way. Okay. And... We're not talking about even a thousand people. We're talking about a billion and a half people. When do you see this? When you go on Hajj, there are small variations. Do I keep my hands up after uh, you know at uh, uh, at each every time I get it from Ruku? Um, do I do this with my finger? Do I do this with my finger? So forth and so on. Right. Uh, but those are, those are tiny differences that also get traced back to the Prophet peace be upon him. So seriously consider the open miracle that our prayer is. There's no central manual. And still, everybody prays more or less the same ways. There are some communities where you'll go where salah is not emphasized, and you will see other prayer-ish practices that are not at all salah. That you will see. Um, but uh, otherwise, salah is the same everywhere you go. And it took me a while to really, really appreciate this, but this is literally one of the open miracles of our tradition. It's literally a miracle. And, uh, I mean... Just try to try to conceive of it, and, and I'm saying I would even call the memorization of the Quran an open miracle in the sense that it is also consistent. But at least you have a book there. You don't have a book; it's literally handed down person to person, across education levels, across ethnic uh, uh, boundaries, across socioeconomic levels, and everybody prays the same way. So I can go, as you know, you can go to some random masjid in just about any corner of the world right now, and they're going to be praying the same way. And, and, and take time to really think about this. So what are we saying? That we are connecting to the Prophet, peace be upon him, as this little, literal chain of person to person. Okay. So this connection is also part of the living tradition of Islam. So you're connecting to Allah in your salah. You're connecting to the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay, you got the two easy ones. What else or whom else are you trying to connect to? In your prayer. Yeah, now it gets hard. So... Uh, how do you know what time it is to pray? Well, you look at your phone and that tells you, right? Uh, how do we know? Sun. Yeah, so it relates to where the sun is in the sky or, um, in one case, you know, how long your shadow is. So you're also connecting to nature. Okay. 
I mean, with technology, as is the case not only with our prayers, but every aspect of life, it allows us to get disconnected um, or transform connections from person to person to person to, you know, Facebook page. But uh, the point being that um, you're also connecting to nature because it is through nature that you know how to, whether or not it's time to pray. Uh, What's also fascinating is that if you look at the scriptures of all the different traditions, our book actually speaks about nature more than all the other books. You would think that, for example, the Buddhist texts would speak more about nature, the Hindu texts speak more about nature, but if you actually take them head to head, our book actually speaks more about nature. And then how we speak about nature as one of the signs of God or as one of the gifts of God to serve us, so far and so on, uh, adds more to it. But, yeah, a third thing you're trying to connect to is nature. A fourth thing you're connecting to is the community, right? Because the ideal prayers are the prayers that are done in congregation. So much so that it's 20 plus uh, times more in, in value. Okay, so you're also trying to connect to the community. This becomes especially important um, for, for college students who are often activist-minded. One of the traps activists often fall into is that they despise the community that they're, that they're actually trying to serve. Okay, this may not be relevant to all of you. This is the point I have to constantly make to the Loyola students, um, that if you're serving the community, you shouldn't be vilifying the community itself. But the point is that, um, and that's beside the point, but uh, uh, the point here is that you're also trying to connect to the community. The fifth thing that you're connecting to in your prayer is yourself. And, and think about this, uh, about this a few ways. Uh, everyone has difficulty concentrating their prayers, right? When you make your prayer then, or when you're in prayer mode, then you're thinking about all the work you got to do, and then your mind is wandering something else and something else. Allah Akbar, then you go into, uh, you know, into Ruku, and then you might concentrate for a split second, then your mind starts wandering into something else. Uh, next time you make your prayers, if you can... Try to see how much of the prayer is you thinking of God and how much of the prayer is you thinking about yourself. And, and even when you're thinking about other things and work, you're probably actually thinking about yourself. Okay. Now, in terms of Islamic law, the minimum that you need to think of God to pass, you know, for a passing prayer is about the blink of an eye. Okay. If you thought of God even that much, then all right, you pass. Even if, if you feel like the other 99% of it, you're just wandering. But uh, the condition of your prayer also will tell you how honest with you, you are with yourself versus how self-absorbed you are. Okay. And self-absorbed includes what? You might think you're great, or you might think, man, my life sucks, nobody's fair to me, or I just got to do work, 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 work. That's also a type of being self-absorbed. Okay. And so, so think about this. Uh, uh, when we're saying connecting to yourself, we're not saying being absorbed with yourself. We're talking about being honest with yourself. And that is a hard thing to be. That is harder with each year that goes by. So someone who is my age, it is far more difficult for that person to be honest with themselves than it is for someone in their 20s. Why? Because we've got all these things in life that we're, that we're invested in. You know, whether it's other, other people might be dependent upon us, so we don't have time to think about things like this. Or it took me 45 years to be me. So for me to change, I'm going against 45 years of formation. You guys are going against 20 years of formation. And so, so think about this in terms of your connection with yourself. Because we even have a teaching that says, um, and Imam al-Ghazali quotes this as one of the foundations for one of his books, to get to, know your, to get to know Allah, you need to get to know yourself. Or if you know yourself, you know Allah. And what that means is essentially, you have a natural, innate, hardwired connection to Allah, 
that gets obscured by how self-absorbed you are. That's what really affects your connection to Allah. So it's not something external. It's not some, some conspiracy against Islam or against you. Uh, it's not uh, things in your environment, whether it's in your history or in your, your current situation. You are your primary obstacle preventing yourself from getting closer to Allah. Okay. And, and what that really means is how much you are self-absorbed, and it could be self-love, it could also be self-loathing. Both of them are forms of self, uh, self uh, you know, narcissism. Um, that is your primary obstacle in getting closer to Allah. And so when you're trying to connect, because that that's what we said the B is about, um, <clears throat> you are trying to basically clear yourself. You're trying to clear your heart from being so narcissistic. Okay. And this doesn't mean that I'm calling all you guys narcissistic or everybody around us. I'm saying this is, for a normal human being, the primary obstacle in getting closer to Allah. Okay. Even think about the Quraysh at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him. They all knew him. Okay. They knew him inside and out. And they all respected him completely. And they understood the Quran in not only their own language, their own dialect. Okay. And then on top of that, they, they commonly said that there's no way Muhammad wrote this, and they're even saying no way a person wrote this. Some people would, would accuse the Prophet, peace upon him, in our language of just plagiarizing it, but still it's saying that the Prophet, peace upon him, didn't write it. Okay. Um, and yet they still said no. Right. I mean, many of, many of them eventually, 20 years later, became Muslim, but many of them still said no. And, and how do you make sense of that? Uh, Abu Jahl, who's nicknamed the father of ignorance, what was, his, what was his reason for not becoming Muslim? You guys know? He said, uh, we, uh, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, there's no issue with the theology of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Um, we just have to make sure that, that uh, Muhammad's family doesn't take over the Quraysh, Banu Hashim, yeah. which is kind of like ridiculous. I mean, so he has no issue with, with the actual message. Abu Sufyan, who was the opponent of the Prophet, peace be upon him, almost until the very end, used to sit outside the Prophet's house, peace be upon him, listening to the Qur'an, and would refuse to embrace the message. Yeah. At night, when the Prophet is reciting. Yeah. And so, the point to think about <clears throat> is that when we are trying to conceive of our Islam, uh, one point we're making is that the whole heart of it all is connection. Now think about this in the, in the flip side, that when you are committing a sin, you're breaking a connection. So if I tell you a lie, okay, for whatever reason, maybe it's to make you happy, maybe it's to avoid getting you upset with me, or whatever, maybe it's to impress you or something about me, uh, I'm straining my relationship with you because I'm not being honest with you, and you might find out that I've lied to you, and so I'm severing a connection, right? If you entrust me with something, if you, if, you, if you tell me a secret and I go tell other people, I'm straining, if not breaking my relationship with you. I'm breaking a connection. And even think about sins. Uh, uh, just about every sin you can imagine. And even in your mind, list, uh, list uh, a number of sins. You don't have to share what they are, but like, you know, not your own sins, but sins like um, lying, cheating, killing, whatever. All of those, they're sins because Allah says that they're sins. But if you look at what is the consequence of doing those, you're breaking a relationship. Either you're breaking your relationship with a person or you're breaking your relationship with God. You can also say uh, it's harder to pinpoint sins as this whose consequence is that you're breaking a relationship with nature. 
Okay. But um, that's what sins do. So they're also breaking connections. So what you will often find in projects is those projects are often more successful, uh, whether we're talking about a business project or an activist project or even a religious project, um, if you can figure out ways to bring people together. Say, especially people who would otherwise be opposed with each other. If you can bring people together, those, especially from the spiritual realm, tend to be far more successful. Yeah. As opposed to those that tend to be exclusivist or the, those that tend to be uh, divisive, those tend to fail much more often in the long term, though not necessarily in the short term. And that's one thing to really think about in terms of you know, whatever is said in the inauguration speech. Because the most divisive people are often the people who speak unity the most, right? We must be unified, we must be unified, whether it's a Juma Khutbah or a presidential address. Uh, but often people who are saying that what they're actually saying is that you must be more like me. And if not, then you're the one who is, who is preventing um, unity. So, so the most central lesson for our purposes so far to think about uh, is connection. And so evaluate that in your own life. Look at all the places in your life where you have a connection with Allah, with the Prophet, peace be upon him, with nature, with the community, and community includes all different aspects, including your family, your friends, and strangers, um, and the connection with yourself. And then look at all those places in your life where you have disconnect with Allah. So you might have connection with Allah in one aspect and have disconnect in other aspects, with the Prophet, peace be upon him, with nature, with community, and then with yourself. And take time over the, over the course of next week and just reflect on this. Because what are we saying? That one of the most essential, essential, essential goals of Islam is to build these connections and strengthen these connections. And um, that, another consequence of that, especially in terms of our contemporary era, that also will give you more stability, emotional stability. That uh, one of the consequences of the social media era is that we are allowed, it allows us to be disconnected from everyone else with the illusion of being connected, because you have Facebook friends or Instagram followers, and that's an illusion of connection, right? And so uh, when you are on your own, you become much more vulnerable to everything around you, um, starting with your own thoughts, right? Uh, when you are in the company of people, you will by definition often be far more stable uh, uh, emotionally. And so what I'm saying is that the more connections you have uh, in all these different aspects of life, the more it will make you be more stable emotionally, stable spiritually, stable physically, uh, and the more it'll help you also grow if you put yourself in the company of people who can then also help you grow. In contrast to being all by yourself. It's uh, very easy, it's almost hard not to be an island all by yourself in, in today's world where you just disconnect from everybody. You can be in a room full of a thousand people and all those thousand people are talking to each other and yet they're all completely disconnected from each other. That's one of the strange things uh, that technology allows us to have. Uh, any thoughts? So we basically made it through the first letter of, of Al-Fatiha. <laughs> any thoughts, questions about anything? Don't worry, we'll be, we'll be a lot more interactive here. We're just, uh, uh, we're just setting up uh, foundations. And um, nothing. All right, so, so we'll continue, inshallah, next time. So I'm thinking next time we'll, we'll meet uh, at this time again, uh, but then uh, after that we'll see if we can shift it to the afternoons, and that'll probably be easier for a whole lot of other people. Okay, yeah. Would you do Jummah here, or would you do some Really depends on the day, uh, because um, 
often I'm scheduled to give Jummah at Loyola or other places. So if I'm not scheduled, then I can come here. All right, subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma, glory to you, O Allah, wa bihamdika, praise and gratitude are to you. Nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, we bear witness there is no God but you. Nastaghfiruka, we seek your forgiveness. Wa natubu ilayk and we turn to you. Wa akhirat da'wana, and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. May Allah tell us you all.